Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last year, I, uh, I shared a story with you, and this year, we're going to do round two. This is going to be story time with Pastor Tom, all right? So here we go. Make yourselves comfortable. It's kind of like carpet time in kindergarten, only you're not sitting in the carpet. I'm very excited about this. My accents uh, or my voices might suffer a little bit, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best, okay? We'll do our best. This is the story. <laughs> of the lamb with the lapis lazuli leg that got lost. The leg, not the lamb. <laughs> on the western coast of Italy, in the center of a small village on a hill, stood a beautiful marble statue of a lamb. The statue was the pride and joy of the village because it had been crafted by the village's only claim to fame, a sculptor named Patella Retechinaculum. The model Patella used for his statue was his great-great-grandmother's mother's favorite lamb named Basil. There was a legend about Basil that had been passed along for years. The myth claimed that one stormy night Basil slipped off a cliff by the sea and broke his little lammy leg, his furry fibula, you might say, on the rocky beach below. He would have died there, but a mermaid came along and healed his leg, after which it took on the hue of the crystal sea, the brilliant blue of lapis lazuli. Now, when Patella gained his fame as an artist, he created the sculpture in honor of the legend of the lamb with the lapis lazuli leg. It was stunning. Incidentally, no one believed the legend of the lamb, and the mermaid, and it just passed along from generation to generation like some great big game of telephone. Nevertheless, the legend helped sell postcards to the tourists who came to see the Patella sculpture. And then came the fateful day in May. May 5th, 289 AD, to be exact. The sun was just peeking out from behind the mountains when little proximal metatarsal fidgeted, as little boys do in the morning, on his way to the latrine between his house and the chapel. Proximal was about to step onto the, court, uh, into the outhouse when he paused, something slowly registering in his little Italian cranium. Cautiously, he turned around and looked towards the town square where Basil was upon his pedestal, but something was wrong, for where the sun should have hit the lamb's illustrious leg, casting blue light across the plaza, was a gap. The lamb's leg was gone. Proximal yelped and all but forgot that he had to pee. Soon all of the villagers, two dozen or so, were standing around gaping at the gap. And you can see exactly where I ran out of time for illustrations. <laughs> Their reactions ranged from confusion to disbelieving sadness to brooding anger. Scapula, the town's unofficial leader, as they were too insignificant to have an elected mayor, was practically snorting. Ilium, the village's old dude, sighed. Well, it looks like we have a crime on our hands, pure and simple. What do you think we should do, Scapula? asked Ilium. Ilium looked at the townspeople, looked at Basil, the three-legged lamb, 
looked back at the townspeople and then over to Scapula. Well, uh, if it's a crime, uh, we should probably get to... No, Scapula said. Well, uh, it's a crime, uh, Ilium began again. Please, uh, no, uh, Scapula said. We should get the hemlock bones. The townspeople murmured their approval, and Scapula sat down to pout. He couldn't stand that man. I'll give him a ring, Ilium said, and headed to the chapel. <clears throat> the bells of the chapel rang. It's like a bat signal, really, echoing through the hills, signaling their need of hemlock services. Before too long, hemlock's operatic baritone voice could be heard. Echoing along the walls of the marble cliffs in order, and in short order, he exploded onto the plaza. Now, Hemlock was a local legend. He was the undefeated champion of solving mysteries. He specialized in the examination of old bones, for which he had coined the term osteodetectivery. Think of it as a sort of pre-medieval forerunner to CSI. He gave himself the last name Bones because it just seemed to fit with his line of work. You rang, Hemlock chimed melodiously. He rang, Scapula said, gesturing to Ilium. <clears throat> Scapula el grande stupidicus, how are you, old chum? Well, Hemlock, I've been better. We've been better. Basil's lapis lazuli lega was thieved last night. No, gasped Hemlock. Yes, muttered Scapula. I can help. Hemlock said, pulling out his magnifying glass, which incidentally had not been invented for 800 years. <laughs> for six hours, Hemlock interviewed witnesses, starting with Proximal, who had been the closest to the crime. He examined the statue, the crime scene, sat down, stood up, stared blankly at the sea, scribbled some notes on parchment, and said a lot of hmms and ahs and eurekas. Then, at roughly four in the afternoon, Hemlock stood, cleared his throat, and made a proclamation. I know who did it, he said confidently. The town lit up with the news, and the villagers gathered again on the plaza. First, I would like you to notice this small hair. It isn't a human hair, it is a cat hair. When I saw it, I said to myself, self? What would a cat want with a lapis lazuli's leg? I suppose it's possible that a less admirable breed of animal that the cat might be uh, might simply be a vandal. But then I thought again, although cats are known to be devious and evil, I wasn't sure that cats have the mental capacity for such a plot. Then I noticed a very well obese cat. So I asked Proximal's older brother, Distal Metastarsal, about the cat, and discovered that his name is Elardo Fat Catechus. However, when I inquired about an alibi for the cat, it turns out that El Lardo had been sleeping on Distal's blanket last night and practically pinned him in the bed. That cat is so fat that Distal was not able to escape his bedding to go to the washroom. It's a true, uh, Distal said. I totally wet on my bed last night. <clears throat> the townspeople murmured approvingly. This was classic Hemlock. Brilliant. Hemlock pretended not to notice and continued. But I was still stumped. How did the cat hair get there? Is it possible the cat had an enemy who was interested in framing him? The town dog came to mind. Now, although dogs are much more loyal and amiable and cuter and nicer and kinder than cats, 
It is possible that the dog had enough of El Lado's arrogant lollygagging ways and plotted to have him thrown in the slammer. Plus, dogs love leg of lamb. But the dog's alibi checked out too. Scapula's eyes narrowed. Don't tell me. You check it with the mouse next and then the sparrow. Scapula, no. A mouse is one thing, but a sparrow, really? Hemlock shook his head incredulously and continued his elucidation. After investigating the dog, I came very close to the statue like this and used my magnifying glass. I found the most minute speck of lapis lazuli, almost as small as a crumb, which could only mean one thing. Whoever took the leg used brute force to remove it. How do you deduce it or not? They, they add syllables to every word in Italy. It's all you got to do to be an Italian. Added the syllables. <laughs> Scapula said skeptically, My dear chum, consider this. Hard minerals tend to crumb when bashed with brute force. That's proposition one. Proposition number two, we have a crumb of lapis lazuli here. Therefore, the crumb is the result of a brute force. Could it not that the crumb have been placed there? Ilium asked. I mean, uh, that was uh, your argument for the cat, the hare. No. No, 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 Hemlock said. Did you not hear my argument? It's airtight. The blue crumb is the result of brute force removal. Furthermore, I found this hammer beside the statue. It is clearly the hammer used by the criminal to bash the leg off the scat statue. What does this all mean? Ilium inquired. It means you have a criminal among you. The crowd gasped with muted, who, who, who could it be? In this case, we have only one option. It was proximal metatarsal. Tears welled up in proximal's eyes, while his brother Distal nodded, nodded in agreement with Hemlock and said, Good work, sir. Lock him up. <laughs> Scapula, unconvinced, said, Um, uh, Hemlock, just how did you arrive at such a conclusion? Hemlock beamed. Happy to enlighten. Now keep up, idiots, because I'm about to unleash the full power of my intellect upon you. First, I know that Proximo hates the cat and loves the dog. This was made clear when I interviewed him and saw the dog calendar in his room and the dog shirt on his bed and the dog watch that he was wearing on his wrist. Furthermore, since the cat belongs to Distal, Proximo had a potential motive to frame the cat and possibly implicate his brother in the process. Furthermore, since we know that the leg was removed with brute force and that a four-year-old is a weakling, Distal nodded again, we can deduce that Proximo must have been using the hammer to bash off the leg. Ilium didn't look convinced. So Hemlock picked up his pace. Who is the first one who saw the leg missing? Proximal. I had to pee, sir, Proximal said. And did you pee? Hemlock demanded. Yeah, a little right now in my pants. <laughs> what? This is stressful. I'm four. Okay, Hemlock continued. Answer this. What is your favorite hobby? Finger painting. And what is your favorite color? Blue. And Hemlock raised his eyebrows. And do you know where blue paint comes from? No, I'm four. From the powder, well, no, from the powder, there we go, from the powder of the crushed lapis lazuli, Hemlock said with a wild look in his eyes. If you want to know what clinched it in my mind, look at this. Hemlock held up the hammer. Proximal, do you know your letters? What letter is this? It's the letter P, Proximal whispered. There's a lot of P going around, Distal mused. 
And what does your name start with? Hemlock asked. P, Proximal said. Correct! And there you have it, townspeople. The hammer belongs to none other than Proximal Metatarsal, a virtual confession of the crime. The case of the lamb with the last lapis lazuli leg has been solved. <laughs> but uh, where is the leg now? Ilium asked. It's gone, of course, Hemlock said. The little whelp crushed it up and made blue paint out of it. <clears throat> Just then a wagon pulled into the plaza. Proximal spoke first. Hey, look, uh, that pee on the wagon, it matches the pee on my hammer. Uh, Hemlock looked confused. Oh, uh, hey, folks. How are you enjoying this beautiful weather? The driver of the wagon asked. Oh, uh, hey, you found my hammer. Glad to. It was going to be hard to reinstall the lamb's leg without it. Gotta be careful with a gem like this. Could chip or break if you aren't careful. Who are you? Hemlock stammered. Oh, the name is Gus. I work for the Patella Retacunaculum Restoration Company. We have contracts with all of these villages to come by and clean up his artwork from time to time so they look as good as possible. But why did you take the leg at night? Why not tell anyone, Hemlock demanded. Oh, well, last night I swung by the village, but the weather was too dry. I didn't want to damage the leg or the statue, so I waited until a nice humid evening to do my work. I talked to some old dude about it. Ilya made a soft sound. Ah, oh, right, Gus. I remember now. <laughs> oh, man. Did you think someone stole the leg? That's rough, Gus said. Hemlock looked nervous. Then suddenly he straightened himself and declared, I don't care what this guy says about the leg. I say it's a fake. He's covering up for the boy. Uh, no, I'm not, Gus replied. Yes, it's a fake. I could recognize it anywhere. Gus is working with Proximal. No, he's with the cat. Gus is, no, Gus, Gus is Proximal's real father. Paternity test, we need a paternity test over here. Get out of town, Hemlock, Ilium demanded, giving both his ears a wicked flick. And Hemlock left, still muttering about being right. Gus finished reattaching the leg in less than an hour and gave Proximal his hammer as a gift. Now, this inspired Proximal to take up the art of sculpting. You might wonder what became of Distal. He became an apprentice of Hemlock. And the dog became good friends with El Lardo and even helped him lose some weight. And the legend of the lamb with the lapis lazuli leg lived on. The end. Thank you for clapping. The four o'clock service did not understand the pause I left. Now, this is a silly story. It's actually quite stupid. But it's middle school weekend. I have permission. What is the point, though? There's one point that I want us to remember this morning, and that truth has a consequence. And what we believe about the truth actually determines how we live and how we see the world. And it's remarkable to me that some people can be as blind as hemlock when it comes to seeing the truth that is presented right before them. They come up with a, an understanding of how something works, a story or a, a historical event. 
And then they're presented with the evidence, and they refuse to change their story, and they leave muttering, going, no, no, it must be a fake, it must be a fake. You know what? There's good news when it comes to the truth, and this is what, what it is. You know, if you want to measure something, if you want to measure the temperature, you take a, an objective measuring tool, a thermometer, you go outside, you hold it, you see, oh, it's not very warm today in Manitoba. If you want to measure how much power is left in a battery, you take it to a, a battery tester and you test it, whoop, you can see how much power is left in that battery. And if you want to know how much truth is in a story, there are tests that you can apply to a story or a statement. There's actually three of them that I'm going to give you today. There's three tests that you can apply that Hemlock tried to apply, but it did not work. Let's look at them. The first is this. It's called the internal cohesion test. And I believe, even when I'm teaching in middle school, that we should use the real words. So we're going to use the real words today. This is the internal cohesion test. Internal means inside, so it's inside the story. And cohesion means that it sticks together. So we're asking, is the story logical? Does it contradict itself? That's what we're asking. Are there pieces of the story that just don't seem to fit? That's what we're asking. It's the first test. The second test is called the external correspondence test. External means outside of the story. Correspondence means, does it make sense or relate to the world around it? In other words, does the story contradict other facts in reality? Is it factual? And when we apply this test, we now look not only for a factual story or something that makes sense in, uh, in reality, but we look for the best possible explanation. Often, it's a simple explanation, and it's the best possible explanation. It's the most reasonable explanation, even if there are more than one, okay? So, for example, Hemlock broke this rule. He failed his test. He gave a, a proper logical argument. Listen to what he said. He said, uh, premise one, hard minerals tend to crumb when bashed with brute force. Premise two, we have a crumb of lapis lazuli here. Therefore, the conclusion, the crumb is the result of brute force. But that's only one possible answer. That's like saying, uh, when it's raining, I get wet. I am wet, therefore it's raining. Is that necessarily true? No, that doesn't prove anything. It could be true, but it doesn't necessarily prove anything. And when we're looking at evidence for truth, remember, we don't look for just what's possible or plausible. We look for what's most reasonable. We want to look for what's reasonable. So that's test number two. And then we come to test number three. It's called the functional adequacy test. Does the story make sense in real life? Is it even livable? Can something go from the head of an inventor or writing on paper to the actual thing? Does it actually work in real life? Well, Hemlock said that he, he rightly stated, correctly stated, that Proximal's favorite pastime was finger painting, his favorite color was blue, and he was correct that blue in those days came from crushing up lapis lazuli. That's where they got a lot of blue pigment from for their paint. But Proximal was right. He was four. Four-year-olds can't do what Hemlock was suggesting happened. Four-year-olds can't do that. I know. I've met them. 
They can't. So it fails the functional adequacy test. Here's another example. This is a real-life example. Well, <laughs> it uses a real-life example. Let's say a friend of yours comes to you and says, you know, I want to I emulate Pastor Chris, and I want to go skydiving next year for my birthday. Ooh, that's a good idea, because he went for his 40th birthday last year. And so we say, okay, it was pretty daring. How are you going to up, one-up him? We go, well, I got a plan. This time when we go up to 28,000 feet, I'm jumping without a parachute. Pastor, Pastor Chris, he's got no faith. <laughs> he used a parachute. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to die. No, no, no. In, 19, in the 1980s, there was a Russian airliner that exploded, and everybody on it died except for one person, a flight attendant. Her last name was Volovic. She plummeted to the earth in a piece of the fuselage and survived. That was in the 1980s. She just died two years ago. See? possible. Of course it's possible, but is it reasonable? You see, you don't take the exception to the rule and make it the rule. Just because Volovic got lucky or blessed or there was a miracle, you don't make that the rule when you're looking for truth. Does this make sense? Does it actually work in real life? Now, the story of the lamb has very little to do with real life, except that we can use it as an illustration to learn about truth. But we do these tests every day. Every single day you do these tests. You, you turn on the news and you hear on one news network the leader of a country saying this. And then you turn on another news network and you hear about an official in his office who says this. And the stories don't match. And you go, somehow... Somebody has failed the test of truth. It's either the internal cohesion test, the external correspondence test, or the functional adequacy test. Could be any of those. But somebody has failed, and we do that every day. We almost know it intuitively. We don't know that we're applying these tests, but we kind of know it intuitively. And even middle school students can do this. Middle school students do this all the time. They know the truth. Like when your friend comes to you and says, dude, she totally kissed me last night. You're like, no, you're a liar. You failed the functional adequacy test because you're a loser. <laughs> she did not kiss you. No. False. Right? You just kind of tell. A hundred percent in calculus. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope. So we know this intuitively. And the great thing about these tests of truth is that not only do you apply them every day, and not only do they apply... Not only do you do it a lot instinctively, you can apply it to, uh, say, an event, a story that's happened in the distant past. So that's what I want to do now. I want to read you another story. One more story. It's going to be chapter two of Storytime with Pastor Tom, and this is a different kind of story. Peter sat silently on the rough bench of his fishing boat. He was mending the nets. The nets had been neglected since he had left the family business three years earlier to join Jesus. And truth be told, he wasn't paying attention to the nets. He was preoccupied, staring blankly into the inky waters of Galilee. He'd been on that sea a thousand times before, 
His father had taken him fishing for as long as he could remember. When he got older, together with his brother Andrew and their friends, James and John, they had grown the business into a small fishing empire. James and John. The sons of thunder were dozing in the bow after a long night of unsuccessful fishing. Nathaniel and Thomas had insisted on coming along as well. Now, Thomas was a useless fisher, but he was fun company. And Peter smiled, thinking of Tom's wit. But the feeling passed quickly as he nicked his finger with the knife he was using to cut the lines. Cursing quietly under his breath, he reached over the edge of the boat and rinsed his hand in the sea. As his fingers dipped beneath the surface, his memory flashed back to the day that the water had felt firm under his feet. He remembered as if it was just yesterday. He remembered the waves and calling out through the storm, Is that you, Lord? Yes, Cephas, it's me, Jesus had called back. Come to me, come out of the boat. And so Peter went to Jesus. He walked on the water. Of course, when his mind caught up with his compulsiveness, terror almost sent him under the waves. But Jesus, full of confidence and strength, had reached for him and pulled him back to the surface. He should have died that day. The water was burning the small wound on his finger. It was, it was bleeding more than it should. You could see the drops of blood sinking out of sight. Blood is thicker than water, they say. Water and blood. Everything in life seemed to revolve around those two liquids. Chills ran down his spine as he remembered the blood. There was so much blood. How would he ever get those images out of his thoughts? And then there was the water. It had poured out of, of Jesus' side when his master was dead. His master was dead. But then, yesterday happened. The women had gone to attend to the body. But the body, it was gone. It had been stolen. Peter saw red. Fury raced back into his face and his cheek twitched. Mary insisted she had seen angels. And then she had the audacity to say that she spoke with Jesus. Women. And Peter shook his head. Nothing made sense. And now the sun was peeking over the hills and hitting the water, blinding him. Ugh, the fish would be going deeper than his nets could reach now. He sighed. Time to call it and head in. Suddenly, a voice called out from the shore. Men! Did you catch anything? Peter smacked Andrew away. Get up, Dad's on the shore, and we've got nothing to show for it. When will we be old enough not to fear that man? Andrew asked sleepily. When he's dead, Peter said. And then likely his ghost will haunt us. Man! The man asked again. Uh, no, sir. We fished all night, but we caught nothing. Did you try the other side of the boat? Great suggestion, Dad. Maybe the fish are hiding off the starboard side. Peter bit his tongue, though. Get up, guys. Dad wants us to try the other side of the boat. 
You have got to be kidding me, Thomas whined. Just do it, Peter commanded. So the boys shook the fog from their heads and tossed the holy nets off the other side of the boat. Within seconds, they felt tension on the line. Then they felt weight. What's going on, Peter? Andrews asked. But Peter didn't answer. Pull up the nets, Thomas yelled. James, John, come on, guys, put your backs into it. Careful, Andrew shouted. The nets, they're tearing again. Peter, the nets are tearing again. Peter! Peter muttered something. What? Andrew said. That's, that's, not, that's not dad. Andrew, that's him. The men froze. It's him! And Peter dove into the cold water as laughter rang out from the rocky shore. After Peter pulled himself out of the water, he ran down that beach to where Jesus was cooking a fish over a small fire, and he soaked him with a bear hug. It was difficult to see whether the water running down his face was from the swim or from crying. You weren't there. You weren't there. Peter said finally, the tomb, it was empty. Mary told you she saw me, Jesus said with a twinkle. Yes, but you know women. <laughs> I do, Peter. Maybe you should listen next time. But Peter wasn't listening. They, they said we stole your body. Is that what they're saying? Jesus said, still grinning. But we didn't. We didn't, we didn't steal your body. <laughs> Apparently not. No one, no one is going to believe this, Peter said. Some people will, Peter. Some people. Jesus was interrupted as the other men reached the fire. And as they cried and talked and questioned Jesus, Peter grew quiet. Some time later, Jesus excused himself and Peter and went for a private talk as they walked down the beach. And the Lamb of God, whose body had gone missing, had a conversation of his own concerning Peter and the lambs that were now in his care. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. The talk worked. Peter regained the strength he had lost in the shame of denying Jesus. He became Peter, the rock, and Jesus established the church on his leadership. He would die for that church. He would die for the resurrected lamb. That sacrificial lamb was alive, and everything had changed. You know, Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians the Apostle Paul, he wasn't there that day. Lots of other people or a number of other people were, but Paul wasn't. He wrote about it later on to his friends in a church called Corinth. He had planted this church a few years earlier in around 51 AD. And when he wrote it, one of the things he said in that letter was this, and if Christ has not been raised... If his body has not been located, 
then our proclamation is without foundation and so is your faith. Now notice what he doesn't say here. He's saying if the resurrection didn't happen, then our proclamation, our preaching, our truth is without foundation. You know what he didn't say though? He didn't say the birth of Jesus is, the birth of Jesus is not the foundation of your faith. He also shockingly did not say that, that the life of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus were the foundation of our faith. And he did not say that the death of Jesus was the, uh, was the foundation of our faith. He said that Easter morning was the foundation of our faith. And think about it for a minute. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, the disciples had gone along with Jesus. I mean, Mary had seen him born and she thought he was crazy, her own son. The disciples had seen Jesus confound the temple priests. He had seen them take, he had, they had seen him take on Rome. They had seen him raise the dead and heal lepers and give sight to a blind man. They had seen him curse a fig tree and it died. And then when Jesus died, where were they found? Fishing. But you know what happened after Jesus found them fishing? Everything changed. Everything changed. After that, just two short months later, the church was having its first evangelistic meeting and thousands of people were being added. Thousands of people were being added to its number. You know who didn't like that? The temple over here and the empire over there. Neither of them liked it. The empire was, was a little nervous about this, these people following a dead leader. The temple was curious. They couldn't find his body. And together they were trying to extinguish this little fire that had started. That's why Paul says we are, we are pressed on all sides, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. And isn't it interesting that that event that changed everybody's life, even the temple knew that it was going to be a problem. In Matthew 28, that's, that's where we read that the temple officials came and bribed the soldiers and said, tell everybody that the disciples came at night and stole Jesus' body. They knew that they were in trouble if they didn't have a story. They knew it. They were in trouble. And isn't it amazing today that people are still trying to attack that story? And you know what's fabulous? We can apply the test of truth to a story that happened 2,000 years ago. I want to give you just three very quick points of why I believe that Jesus actually res was resurrected, why he rose from the dead. The first one is this. The first, the first time the story of Jesus' resurrection was told and recorded is probably within six months to a year of when he actually rose from the dead. Think of that for a minute. We have very, very early stories of something happening. And you know how we know that? We know it because Paul wrote it in this letter to the Corinthians. He wrote it in the letter to the Corinthians. And there's this little poem. It comes just before that, that verse that I read. It says this, "'For I passed on to you as most important "'what I also received.'" So he's saying, I gave to you a lesson that I also learned. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number one, that he was buried. Number two, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And number three, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to a group of other people. And finally, he appeared to me. 
Now, I already told you that that letter to the, his friends in Corinth, that was written in 51 AD. No, he planted the church in 51 AD. He was writing the letter a few years later. So how do we know that that poem, how do we know that that poem where it talks about he, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared, how do we know that that comes from so short after Jesus was resurrected? Well, this is how we know. He says, what I'm about to tell you is something that I learned. Well, when did he learn it? Scholars believe that the, that the time that Paul learned this little poem was when, after he had become a Christian. He became a Christian about three years after Jesus rose from the dead. Then it says that upon becoming a Christian, he went to Arabia for three years. He did not go to Jerusalem. Then in Galatians, we read he went from Arabia back to Jerusalem, and he met with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And for 14 days, they taught him. And do you know what we believe? That during those 14 days, they taught him this poem. This is a poem. It doesn't read like a poem necessarily in English. But in the original language, I heard it explained this week, it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. It's a, it's a rhythm. It's a poem. Why would they have used this poem to tell the story of Jesus? Why? Because they couldn't read for themselves. So they did something. It's called they codified it. They put it into a poem. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that way, everybody could remember it. And somewhere between six months to one year after Jesus rose from the dead, they were already saying this poem. And all, all Paul is doing here is he's just reminding his friends at Corinth who might not have heard that poem before, he's reminding them. Did you know that even skeptics, people who do not believe that the Bible is true, believe that this poem comes from six months after the resurrection? That's what they believe. That's historical. Fascinating, isn't it? So, now that's important because it means that there wasn't a lot of time to make up a story. Let's say we have that poem in its original written form, but it came 300 years after Jesus' resurrection. 300 years is a long time to make up a story, isn't it? But that's not what we have. We have six months. And if any lies are in that little poem, there would have been enough people around to say, ah, 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 no, 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 you're not saying it quite right. There was no legend in that poem. It was all true. So the first reason that I believe that the resurrection really happened is we have, we have a poem, a written account of what happened just six to, months to 12 months after Jesus was raised from the dead. The next reason I believe is that many people, it says, including groups uh, and, and individuals, saw that Jesus was alive. They actually saw it. Guys, can you go ahead in the slides? They actually saw that he was alive. Now, it's one thing if one person saw Jesus alive. It's another thing if very many people saw if Jesus was alive for exactly the reason that I just said. With very many people who are alive, it means that there's lots of eyewitnesses. Let me use an example to help you understand why this is so important. There's a lot of people here today, maybe, I don't know, 1,200 or something like that. Okay? Maybe. Let's say today I, I came up here and I said, you know what I saw in my news feed this morning? I said, I saw a really interesting news story. The news story, it said this. It was, it's an about event that we don't really like that much. It's the, the Pride Parade. Three years ago, the first Pride Parade happened, and I, I saw this morning on Facebook that they said in the news they hope what happens this year at the Pride Parade didn't happen the first year. And you go, well, what happened the first year? The news story says... 
there was violence and protesters. What? No, 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 no. This is a fake story, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and you know it. You know why? You were around. That's three years ago. You remember, there was nothing. It was a boring day. We go, fake news. That's not true. Because there are this many eyewitnesses, we can verify that it never happened. Or we could verify that something did happen. That's why it's important to that we have so many eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That's the second reason, I believe. And then there's a third reason. The third reason is that right after the resurrection, the church exploded. The church absolutely exploded. And remember, on one side you had the temple, on the other side you had the empire. Nobody wanted the church to, to succeed, and yet it exploded. And not only did it explode, but the people who started it died for it. Ten of the, 11, of, of the, of the, of the original twelve disciples lost their lives for the church. Judas committed suicide, and John died of old age. But 10 of them were killed because they started the first church. Nobody does that. Nobody does that if they don't believe it actually happened. Nobody does that. You know, it's been said that many people will die for a lie that they believe is true. In other words, they, they die believing that something was the truth and it turns out it was a lie. Many people will die for a lie that they believe is true, but nobody, nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie. Nobody does that. And yet these men did. And countless other people. I read on the news this morning, 300, somewhere in the neighborhood of 385 Christians every month give their life for their faith. They're saying now in the secular news that Christians are the most persecuted group of people in the world. People are still dying for the truth. Why? Because they know that it's the truth. And you know what? The skeptics have a problem on their hands because they don't want to believe the truth. So they come up with their own theories, and their own theories can be tested. I'm going to give you three theories. They're going to go fast because they're bad. The first reason that the skeptic says Jesus did not rise from the dead is an interesting one. It's called the swoon theory. It was developed by a guy named H.E.G. Paulus. He was a German theologian in, the, in 1828, and he said, we have a problem on our hands, guys. If Jesus rose from the dead, he probably is who he said he is. So we've got to come up with an alternative, otherwise we're going to have to become Christians. And you know what he said? He said, I think maybe Jesus just swooned. That means he fainted. What if Jesus just fainted while he was on the cross? He fainted, and then later on, when he was in that nice, cool, damp tomb, he revived. He didn't come back from the dead. He never died. Uh, let us rehearse what happens in a crucifixion. Jesus was beaten so badly that he couldn't carry even the cross piece of his own cross on his back. He had spikes driven through his hands and wrists and hung bleeding for six hours. The Romans thrust a spear deep into his side and water, what appeared to be water, came out confirming he was dead. That particular phenomenon of clear liquid coming out only happens after a person is dead. Never mind the fact that if, even if he had awoken in the tomb, guess what he would have done is died in the tomb because the man just 
bled for hours and hours and hours, and now he's going to move a great big stone and escape? Not a chance. I can't move a big stone, and I've got all my blood. <laughs> it fails. It fails. Then the second theory, and there's lots of them, but these are the best. The hallucination theory. It says maybe that all the people who saw Jesus resurrected were just having visions and hallucinations. You know what's interesting about hallucinations? It's very rare for more than one person to have the same hallucination. It is possible, they've actually done this, where they play tricks on people and they, they convince a group of people that something has happened and you all believe that you have the same hallucination. But you know what doesn't happen? Groups of people in different places don't have the same hallucination. It has never happened. <clears throat> and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the rule the exception. They're saying that, See, it's happened once, so maybe it happened again. No, 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 no. Just because somebody has an hallucination doesn't mean that suddenly now everybody can have a hallucination of the same thing at the same time, ah, at different times. And then finally, the conspiracy theory. What if the disciples were simply trying to get power so they lied and they really did steal Jesus' body and Matthew was just covering their tracks by writing that in? Like I said, Nobody dies for what they know is a lie. And then you look at the evidence of all the lives that have changed throughout history. You go, oh my goodness, our God, really, our God really lives. You know, it's shocking to me. I think one of the most shocking things about all the evidence and about all the conspiracy theories and all the, the bad science, you know what's shocking to me? That people don't want to believe in Jesus, so they hang their head and walk out of town going, I just know it must be wrong, it must be a fake. That is crazy. You know, we've got a bunch of middle school students in here, and you know what? Grade eights, you're about to go to the, to the high school next year. There are people who are going to tell you that what you believe is a lie, and you don't have to believe them. And you know what? It's going to take a lot of hard work and thinking, and it's going to take a lot of prayer. But there is no reason that you need to abandon your faith because of some lie. And we want to pray for you now as a church. So I'm going to ask you to be brave. This will only last a second, okay? And then we'll join you. But if you're in grade eight, can you stand up? We just want to see where you are a little bit. Okay, I see some people there. Yeah. They're all over the place. Look around. See a grade eight. Remember their face. You're very brave, you guys. Good job. And now we want to stand all together around you, and we want to pray for the grade eights and the middle school students. Our living Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have not only given us stories to learn from, you've given us stories that are true. What an incredible thing to think about. Father, I pray that right now you would protect the minds and the hearts of every one of our middle school students, and especially those grade eights as they go into high school next year. I pray, God, that they would not walk away from you, but they would walk closer to you, that they would find you in the halls of their new schools. I pray that they would find you in the textbooks. I pray that they would find you in the novels. I pray that they would learn to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I ask all of these things in your name. Amen.